gonna know what more. I ain't gonna go, I ain't gonna fight to defend dictators. It ain't right. Standing armies in the colonies beat the people down to their knees. But the plundered nations rise up to seize their liberation, their destinies. No draft, no war, no aggression, no more. No nations made poor by the oppressor next door. Colonizing criminals don't just disappear. You got to stop their war machine. Damn it, stick into the gear. Stick into the gear. On page one, the paper said, only good commies. Is the one that's dead But at the bottom Of page 39 I found out They were lying The CIA Had made a coup Two thousand peasants They had to shoot They told the generals Clean up the scene If you can't do it We'll send the marines No draft No war No aggression no more, no nations made poor by the oppressor next door. Colonizing criminals don't just disappear. You got to stop their war machine. Damn it, stick into the gear. Stick into the gear. Yeah. 
Well, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you once again from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side in the wee hours of October 16th, uh, 2021. And we were just taking the Wayback Machine to uh, 1980, I think, uh, and a song called Sticking to the Gear a uh, anti-draft anthem from Dave Lippman, a radical folk singer from back in the day who's still at it. And this show is uh, dedicated to him because we are undertaking it on the, um, on the recommendation of uh, Dave Lippman, who is a, one of our um, subscribers, one of, one of our patrons of the Counter Vortex on Patreon and has actually taken us up on our special deal where becoming, you know, a, a patron of $2 per weekly podcast and you get to uh, dictate to me, your ranter, what I'm going to rant about on one episode per year that you are a subscriber. So uh, it's really great to uh, have this uh, kind of a collaboration with David Lippman because, you know, that uh, that song came out. I first heard that song back in that fateful year, 1980, which was uh, the year I graduated from high school, the year I turned 18 and had to register for the draft, and the first crop of 18-year-olds who had to register for the draft after Jimmy Carter brought back draft registration, four years after coming into office, you know, offering an amnesty for the uh, Vietnam-era draft resistors, you know, his final year in office, he brought back draft registration, capitulating to the new militaristic and paranoid atmosphere following the um, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and the Iran hostage crisis. So, uh, you know, that was the year and the, you know, particularly the event that, you know, got me, uh, got me politicized, turned me into an anarchist. It was the year I started calling myself an anarchist. And uh, Dave is uh, actually requesting that I discuss the contemporary significance of anarchism. So that's what I'm going to be ranting about tonight. And, uh, you know, that song really kind of summed it up for me because, uh, you know, Dave did not particularly think of that as an, as an anarchist anthem, just more of an anti-imperialist anthem. But um, having to register for the draft is what um, got me politicized, turned me into an activist, and kind of, uh, you know, um, augmented my uh, anti-authoritarian spirit. Now, initially, you know, I will say I was kind of a punk anarchist and I was... Uh, Initially, just kind of, uh, you know, embracing the word because, you know, I wanted to be a bad boy and, <laughs> and you know, sort of had this real defiant, anti-authoritarian spirit of um, standing up to the man. You're not going to tell me what to do. I'm not signing. I'm not going to, you know, go to the draft. And it was in the context of my first activism, which was with a group called New York Coalition Against Registration and the Draft. Some of uh, the people I was involved with in that group I'm still very good friends with today, all these years later. But it was through that group that I, uh, we, we got a copy in the mail of the, uh, you know, the little vinyl record that that song was printed on. <laughs> so um, kind of a flash in me back. And, uh, you know, it's a very interesting moment here because uh, finally, you know, I mean, despite, the, you know, the kind of the, you know, small upsurgence of anarchism around the uh, the punk movement and rock against racism and all that uh, in the and the squatters and so on in, in in the 1980s there has been you know a sense of um, anarchism being you know this outdated anachronistic uh, little understood 
you know, ideological fossil, which is just hanging on. You know, I should say that uh, very shortly after I started calling myself an anarchist, I, you know, became more aware of what the ideology actually means, and it seems to mere, merely be, uh, you know, bad boy posing, and about, you know, an, an ideology as well as an anti-authoritarian spirit, or, I don't know, ideology is kind of a tainted word, um, but a, um, a praxis, if you will. And I discussed uh, some of this in uh, my podcast of October 16th, 2018. Libertarian socialism, not an oxymoron. <laughs> as it was called, in which I um, discussed the near-forgotten legacy of libertarian socialism, as it was called, uh, considered by many today a contradiction in terms. When the word, you know, the word socialism, you know, is all of a sudden back then in 2018, uh, you know, was uh, viewed as legitimate in um, American political discourse once again for the first time in generations with, you know, Bernie Sanders and uh, the, uh, you know, Democratic Socialists of America, DSA, kind of taking on a, a new lease of life after having been a moribund institution for many, many years. Uh, but nonetheless, the word libertarian continued to be associated with the free market right, which sort of, you know, appropriated the term back, uh, you know, I guess in the real point was in the 1960s when Barry Goldwater started calling himself a libertarian. You had the rise of the Libertarian Party with a capital L capital P. Uh, and this is despite the fact that, uh, you know, the term actually has its origins on the anti-authoritarian left or the anarchist left. And that podcast of uh, 2018, you know, I discussed uh, my involvement in New York's Libertarian Book Club back in the 80s and on into the 90s, founded by anarchist exiles from Europe in the 1940s to keep alive their ideals and uh, pass the torch to a new generation, mostly uh, Jews and Italians fleeing, uh, <clears throat> fleeing Hitler and Mussolini. And, you know, as I explained, you know, back when the Libertarian Book Club was founded, way back in the day, I mean, you know, it was the immediate post-war era and, you know, the beginning of the Cold War with Russia. And uh, it was a certain uh, stigma, which you know, might have been attached to uh, the word anarchism as, you know, being too... Um, too radical, and they sort of adopted the term libertarian as a bit of a um, of a euphemism, I think, you know, kind of a wink to the initiated as to who they really were. Now, anarchists had already been calling themselves libertarian socialists before that, but I think they didn't want to call it the anarchist book club, They wanted, so they called it the libertarian book club. But uh, in some ways, you know, that's... Um, you know, kind of appropriate because, you know, it's kind of it's a kind of a didactic name. It makes clear what the ideology actually is, you know, whereas there is, you know, a lot of baggage which is attached to the term anarchism or anarchy. <clears throat> now, some of us, as I stated earlier, you know, we sort of embraced it because of that baggage to a certain extent. But uh, nonetheless, there's there's baggage, which I'll <clears throat> talk about. But libertarian socialism actually says what it means. Liber you know, socialists who take inspiration from such historical episodes as the Zapatistas in Mexico, first time around 1910 to 1919, the Maknovists in the Ukraine from 1917 to 1921, the Spanish anarchists in Catalonia, the real glory days being 1936 to 1937, just that was less than a year when they were really in power. If speaking of anarchists being in power is not a contradiction in terms. 
reshaping society in Catalonia and Barcelona before they were crushed, as I've discussed on other podcasts, and as I'm sure most of you know from the history books. And finally, the uh, you know the Zapatistas again in Mexico, the the you know, second time around, the Zapatistas who uh, took up arms as the North American Free Trade Agreement took effect back on um, New Year's Day of 1994, and still continue to, um, even today, maintain a uh, chunk of liberated territory in the southern state of Chiapas, which is really kind of amazing when you think about it. So all of these groups are uh, examples of peasants and workers who took back the land and the factories, building socialism from below, without commissars, or politburos. And, uh, you know, other movements inspired by this vision on the world stage today, including the um, anarchist-influenced elements of Syria's civil resistance and the autonomous zone of northern Syria's Rojava Kurds, which I'll have more to say about later on in this podcast. So, uh, you know, in that last podcast of uh, episode 20 of the Counter Vortex podcast, October 16th, 2018, you know, I argued that far from being an irrelevant anachronism, a libertarian socialist vision is necessary for human survival. But as uh, Dave Lipman wrote in his uh, request for me to do this rant, he wrote, when you can, please do a show about anarchism with focus on actually existing examples, preferably in the present or recent past. So I've, uh, you know, thought this over and I've uh, come up with a... uh, a list of examples of, you know, concrete victories by anarchist-inspired movements just over the course of my adult life. Now, again, I'm not saying anarchist exactly, but anarchist-inspired or anarchist-informed. You know, all the examples I'm going to uh, mention here uh, are by movements which uh, were, you know, more anarchistic than anarchist per se, definitely influenced by anarchism without being, you know, ideologically rigid about it and without actually calling themselves anarchists in most cases, although also in most cases there are self-identified anarchists among their ranks. Certainly movements that have won wide support from anarchists. All right, first and foremost, the Neo-Zapatistas in Chiapas have carved out a sustainable self-governing zone for themselves, which again, they have held on to Ever since 1994, now, they've lost some territory since then, and there's also a lot more territory in Chiapas today than there was a generation ago, which is kind of um, in a gray zone, neither completely under control of the government nor under the control of the Zapatistas. <clears throat> but nonetheless, there is still a, um, a chunk of territory which is unequivocally, unambiguously, under the control of the Ejército Zapatista de Liberación Nacional, Zapatista National Liberation Army in the jungle of Chiapas. And uh, back when the movement was um, strongest, back in the 90s, they put agrarian reform back on the agenda in Chiapas. Chiapas had been the one place where uh, the agrarian reform in Mexico of the 1930s had never really been carried out because there was this really entrenched oligarchy there that they didn't want to upset the central government under Lazaro Cardenas did not, you know, they wanted to, didn't want to upset them, didn't want to, you know, spark counter-revolutionary violence. So um, it was only, uh, you know, it's been only under the past, the past generation or so that finally, you know, there's been a land reform 
an agrarian reform, a meaningful agrarian reform in Chiapas. And a lot of, you know, the, the big land holdings of the cattle barons and so on have been broken up by um, self-organized peasants taking back the land and exercising enough organized power that uh, the government has had to... Um, has had to respect them and play ball with them and actually give them title to reclaimed lands. It's kind of amazing. The Zapatistas made indigenous rights a pressing issue throughout Mexico, resulting in a constitutional reform, if an insufficient one, as well as changes to several state constitutions. Many small municipalities in Mexico now have the legal right to self-government in their own languages and according to their own indigenous traditions something that was unheard of before the Zapatista uprising. And in addition to, uh, you know, lots of land being liberated from the cattle oligarchy in Chiapas, there's been, or there was back in the 90s when it was at its strongest, certainly continuing today, but strongest in the immediate aftermath of the uprising, a wave of resistance to, you know, seizure of peasant lands for airports and golf courses and computer centers and the like. And uh, these kind of land grabs which had been going on in Mexico for generations, were effectively, in many cases, obviously they're still going on, but many were effectively halted by Zapatista-inspired local insurrections you know, elsewhere in Mexico, particularly in the south, from Chiapas on up the Isthmus through Oaxaca, Guerrero, Morelos, and finally Estado de Mexico, like the village of Atenco, where they wanted to take some of their traditional lands to expand the Mexico City airport. And, uh, you know, finally, I will note, at risk of sounding reformist, that, uh, you know, the democratic opening in Mexico is in large part owed to the Zapatistas, who kind of, you know, lit a fire under the the one-party dictatorship, which Mexico was and had been for generations back in the the 90s, and made them realize that they had to, uh, you know, open up or they were going to be faced with internal revolution. Now, it's also true that the, uh, that the uh, breakup of the one-party state also kind of coincided, or after a couple of years, um, was followed by the uh, descent of Mexico into uh, the you know, social nightmare of um, the narco wars. But um, nonetheless, Mexico is no longer a one-party dictatorship, and that's probably a good thing. Okay, moving on. The Seattle protesters... Back in November 1999, and the movement that they inspired slowed, at least, the advancement of the World Trade Organization and effectively arrested other reactionary globalization initiatives, such as the multilateral agreements on investment. And the anti-globalization movement, which emerged in many ways directly inspired by the Zapatistas and, you know, uh, held... During the, uh, the, the couple of years after the Seattle protest, you know, every time the World Trade Organization or the World Economic Forum or whatever would, um, would meet in cities around the world, they'd be faced with massive protests out in the streets. And there was really a sense that we we're making some progress there. It all was kind of derailed by 9-11. But then we saw something of a reprise in um, the Occupy movement of um, 2011 which was part of a, uh, you know, a more a global ferment that year, which, you know, also included the indignados in Spain, anti-austerity protests in Greece and Italy, and most significantly, of course, the Arab Revolution. And again, you know, I mean, there are, uh, 
There are very obvious nightmares that have emerged across much of the Arab world since then. And there are elements, unfortunately, of, you know, the authoritarian left, more to say about this later, who, uh, you know, kind of view the uh, the Arab Revolution with um, suspicion or worse, just reject it as some kind of, uh, you know, imperialist intrigue or whatever, and like rally around or, you know, pine for in nostalgia, you know, the, the, the deposed dictatorships rally around the dictatorship which still survives, that of Bashar Assad in Syria, and pine for, you know, the deposed dictators, you know, Muammar Gaddafi, and even Hosni Mubarak, who was, you know, a blatant stooge of U.S. imperialism. I mean, that's how bad it's actually gotten. But uh, I see the, um, you know, it, inevitably there's this sense that, you know, these utopian moments open, and uh, then it's all derailed, and there's backsliding. But I take inspiration from the utopian moments. Certainly what happened in, uh, in Mexico in 1994 was a utopian moment. And what happened in the Arab world in 2011 was a utopian moment. Moments that show, you know, windows of, of possibility for what the human race can aspire to and perhaps eventually accomplish. Okay, other examples from Latin America. The 2003 Aymara uprising in Bolivia got that atrocious gas pipeline canceled that they were trying to build across the country at that time. And again, looking at it from a kind of a reformist view, they uh, it ultimately resulted a couple of years later in the election of, um, of Evo Morales, who, and you know, here's the anarchist critique once again, once in power, had to make uh, you know certain compromises with capital and resort to certain authoritarian measures, which I wasn't too happy about. But nonetheless, I think that um, his election was uh, a big step forward for um, Bolivia and for South America in many ways. And he was a leader of the 2003 uprising, but uh, not really in any official sense. And it was very much a, you know, a self-organized and anarchistic affair and more, you know, animated by a spirit of... um, preserving local autonomy for self-governing indigenous communities than aspiring to state power. And Evo's election, which I was enthused about, nonetheless, you know, I also recognized it as representing something of a co-optation of of that movement. Okay, the uh, Picateros in Argentina, who emerged out of the uh, harsh economic crisis in that country way back in 2001, still have barrios and factories under their control you know, now, 20 years after the financial collapse that sparked their movement, the indigenous autonomy movement in Colombia continues to reclaim land from the oligarchy while asserting their right to non-involvement in the civil war. And I uh, was just writing earlier this week about the extremely militant Mapuche ind- indigenous land reclamation movement, which um, now seems to be actually taking up arms in, in Chile. There's actually armed Mapuche rebels who were, you know, seizing control of of state lands, which had been usurped from their uh, traditional territories and opened up to the timber interests and so on. Very interesting. And on the subject of timber interest, bringing it here to uh, Gringolandia, once again, the Earth First movement. You have to say it that way because the exclamation point is a part of the name. You can't just say Earth First. You have to say Earth First with their... um, 
tree-hugging campaign got Northern California's headwaters redwood forest saved from the uh, chainsaws of the Pacific Lumber Company back in the 1990s. One of the last stands of uh, old-growth redwood in Northern California was going to be destroyed, and it wasn't. It was turned into a, uh, into a public reserve after it had been, you know, occupied by, by tree sitters serially for years. And that was just one of, um, you know, many such struggles in the 90s and on into the early 2000s and still to a certain extent going on today <clears throat> across, uh, you know, the Intermountain West from the uh, Rocky Mountains to the Redwoods where people were, uh, you know, radical environmentalists with, again, with a kind of an anarchistic ethic where um, blockading timber roads and the like. And finally, uh, the squatters here on the Lower East Side of Manhattan in the 1980s. Uh, we, we, in 1988, we got the Tompkins Square curfew rescinded for three years at least through our, uh, you know, insurrection that year when they tried to um, impose a, uh, a 1 a.m. curfew on Tompkins Square Park. And, uh, you know, held back the wave of gentrification long, long enough for many of them to get the homes they carved out of abandoned housing stock through their own labor legally recognized. There are still, as I say, on when I do my tour, my Radical History walking tour of the Lower East Side every weekend for the Museum of Reclaimed Urban Space, 3 p.m. at 155 Avenue C every Saturday and Sunday. You know, when the squatter movement was at its peak in the Lower East Side in the late 1980s, or probably something like 25 or 30 squatter buildings, uh, 11 of those have survived. Again, in a deal with the city, eventually, they uh, became legal homesteads, and including the, the one that the museum is actually in, C-Squat, 155 Avenue C, one of the 11 legalized squats, squatter buildings where the, the squatters actually got legal title from the, from the city after negotiations, after many squats had been evicted. So again, you know, a pretty clear-cut victory there. I mean, of course, we met with tremendous reversals. By and large, the movement was defeated, and now the Lower East Side is completely gentrified, and now there is actually a midnight curfew in Tompkins Square Park. So yes, after you know three years of the uh, the Lower East Side the Intifada, as we called it, the <laughs> uprising on the Lower East Side, and it really was for those three years, from 1988 to 1991, it was really an uprising. You know, it was defeated in the end. But nonetheless, there were certain victories which we carved out. And um, <clears throat> even after it was defeated with the closure of the park, that's what it ultimately took in the end. The park, the park was actually closed for, for two years. We didn't have a park on the Lower East Side at all. And finally, the city government said, oh, enough is enough. But uh, after that, in the late 1990s, when the city started... Um, going after the community gardens and wanted to build on top of the community gardens in the neighborhood and elsewhere in the city, protests began to re-emerge. And this time, again, kind of anarchist-informed, many of the people involved actually identifying as anarchists. This time around, more um, idealistic and disciplined and nonviolent and having more of an ecological ethic and not the whole, uh, you know, black-clad, bottle-throwing, nihilistic tendency of the uh, the original Tompkins Square uprising. <clears throat> and again, uh, you know, met with varying degrees of success. There were gardens which were bulldozed, but there were also gardens that were saved. And I point out examples of both on my uh, radical walking tour of the Lower East Side. 
that I do every Saturday and Sunday, 3 p.m. at the Museum of Reclaimed Urban Space in C-Squat, 155 Avenue C on the Lower East Side, between 9th and 10th Streets. Okay, and uh, in that you know, same era, just as the Tompkins Square uprising was going on in the Lower East Side, you also had another one of those utopian moments, which was the, uh, the revolutions that brought down the uh, dictatorships of the East Bloc in 1989. Again, even though this is little recognized today, anarchists and radical ecologists and the like were at the forefront of those movements. And once again, you know, as in Mexico, you know, it was pro-capitalist elites or outright reactionaries who effectively exploited the political opening in many cases in Eastern Europe. I recognize this. But there was also a moment, particularly in the closing months of 1989, when there really was this inspiring vision of some kind of a green and democratic socialism, socialism with a human face, as it were. And I'll point out finally that uh, another anarchist-informed movement that I was involved in, the anti-nuclear movement of the 1970s and early 80s, helped certainly, (laughs) along with unsound economics, to bring that industry's expansion to a complete and hopefully permanent halt, something else that I will be ranting about in future podcasts. And all of these above-mentioned movements have been effective, largely untainted by the uh, apocalyptic nihilism that anarchism has been tarred with, although I've acknowledged exceptions, so it was definitely a, uh, a whiff of apocalyptic nihilism to the anarchist uprising on the Lower East Side in the late 1980s. But... <clears throat> largely untainted by apocalyptic nihilism, and for the most part, working class or subaltern in their composition. And, uh, you know, here is where I, uh, I have to make clear that while I continue after all of these years to call myself an anarchist, uh, I also have to kind of add the um, caveat that I'm a pragmatic anarchist. I mean, you know, every anarchist or a lot of anarchists have got, you know, their prefixes or their suffixes. You know, there's the anarcho-syndicalists and the the anarcho-communists, the anarcho-feminists, the eco-anarchists, etc. Well, I'm a pragmatic anarchist. I um, reject apocalyptic nihilism, and I'm willing to take what I can get under the existing system. And I don't see the existence of such restraints as there are and remain on the inherent rapaciousness of the capitalist system as, you know, merely a mollifying gift from a benevolent government, but as gains of popular struggle and the common people exercising some political muscle and putting the fear into the ruler's and changing what the uh, British Marxist writer E.P. Thompson called the prevailing moral economy. And by way of example, I'm going to here, just to self-promote again, I'm going to direct readers to uh, the big feature story that I just had in um, Project CBD website, projectcbd.org, Death Trap, Human Rights Abuses and Drug War Casualties at Rikers Island, which is New York City's biggest jail, where there is a genuine human rights crisis going on, an utterly oppressive situation. And the activist upsurge around New York City to get Rikers closed 
certainly does not, you know, explicitly identify as anarchist, but it's talking about decarceration and actually dismantling the incarceration state. And even again, in a kind of co-optation, this rhetoric has actually been adopted by the uh, administration of Mayor Bill de Blasio in their official plan to close Rikers, which has been going shamefully slow. They've actually started to adopt, you know, this rhetoric, which has emerged from the activist community of decarceration and radically rolling back the number of people held behind bars in New York City. Now, even that doesn't go as far as the uh, anarchist notion of actually abolishing prisons, but it's a step in that direction. And I will note that, you know, there actually have been, over the course of the past year, since the uh, Black Lives Matter uprising of 2020, there have been overt calls for the abolition of the police to the point that it actually, there was actually an opinion piece in the New York Times, an op-ed piece in the New York Times, June 12, 2020. Yes, we mean literally abolish the police by community organizer Miriam Kaba. Now, these are anarchist ideas. Even if, again, nobody wants to actually invoke that word because it's too uh, much of a uh, proverbial hot potato. These are anarchist ideas. And just like, you know, a couple of years ago, socialist ideas began to re-enter mainstream discourse, and this was a very salubrious development, anarchist ideas are now beginning to re-enter mainstream discourse. Now, do I have a, um, a roadmap of how we're going to um, abolish prisons and the police? No, I don't. But I would like to think that um, through my journalistic efforts, I am contributing to the dialogue on the question. And I nonetheless view the fact that such ideas are now in circulation as a very positive sign amid all the horrors that the world is witnessing at this moment. Something to take heart in. All right, now uh, here, just because I got to be me, <clears throat> I'm going to have to, uh, you know, play gadfly even to the anarchists and uh, voice some criticisms of contemporary anarchism. And I'm going to start by uh, noting a certain irony that, you know, Anarchists have always rejected this tendency to uncritically rally around leftist regimes in other countries or, you know, leftist revolutionary movements. And, you know, sort of the mainstream left position was that you had to uncritically support the Sandinistas in Nicaragua back in the 1980s. And any, any criticism was considered treasonous. And many anarchists now seem to be adopting a very similar attitude toward Rojava the Kurdish Autonomous Zone in northern Syria. And don't get me wrong, I have been extremely inspired by what the Rojava Kurds have accomplished. Their heroic resistance to ISIS and their instating of an actual, again, anarchist-influenced, at least, autonomous zone in their territory in Syria's northeast with experiments in direct democracy based on local councils, with decision-making flowing up from below instead of being imposed down from above, their forthright feminism and secularism. But again, it has to be acknowledged that the Rojava Kurds have collaborated militarily with U.S. imperialism. They were complicit 
in the destruction of the city of Raqqa by U.S. warplanes because they were the ground force that was fighting ISIS, which held the city at that time, that the aerial bombardment was undertaken in support of. And in the Arab-majority territory, which they took from ISIS beginning in 2016, they appear to be uh, you know, perceived as a foreign occupying force by the local population, and they have fired on protests against them. And they are now running very large and grim detention camps for suspected ISIS collaborators out in the desert in eastern Syria, where harsh conditions have been decried by human rights groups around the world. There has been very little grappling with these difficult realities from the Western anarchist supporters of Rojava. And if you mention it, they will make the legitimate argument about the pressures that the Rojava Kurds have faced from ISIS and from Turkey, who want to exterminate them. And I acknowledge the legitimacy of those arguments, but they'll only actually invoke them if you challenge them on it. And there is, you know, a certain sense uh, that, you know, Western anarchist cheerleaders of Rojava just kind of want to avert their eyes from this difficult reality. And more recently, since their autonomous zone was invaded by Turkish forces, green-lighted by Donald Trump a couple of years ago, the Rojava Kurds have actually started to uh, try to broker some kind of a separate peace with the Assad regime, with the genocidal and fascistic dictatorship of Bashar Assad. And again, I recognize the difficult political realities that have enforced them into this position. But nonetheless, let's acknowledge that that is an extremely problematic and compromised position. And I'll point out a particular irony that, you know, a lot of contemporary anarchists absolutely do not want to look at. That just as there were all of these, um, you know, anarchist and ultra-left volunteers from mostly across Europe, but also from the United States, who um, flocked to the ranks of the Rojava Kurds and joined their militias. Similarly, there have been ultra-right and neo-fascist volunteers from across Europe who have been similarly flocking to Bashar Assad and fighting on the ground with the forces aligned with his regime. So, you know, this is a really, really bitter irony that there actually does seem to be a completely paradoxical sort of, you know, anarcho-fascist uh, convergence, which is going on in Syria now, which would certainly give anarchist pause about how they are in danger of being, you know, or we are in danger of being co-opted by our tanky enemies. And I'll have more to say about what I mean by this later. <clears throat> One final thing I want to say about Syria is that, uh, you know, I've been extremely frustrated that uh, Western anarchists have been very reluctant to come to the defense of the general Arab Syrian revolution, which has also been inspired by a kind of anarchist ethic. One of the uh, the earliest leaders and theorists of the Syrian revolution back in 2011 was an anarchist, Omar Aziz, who of course died in Assad's prisons. But he's the one who sort of was the principal theorist of the uh, the early model of the Syrian revolution, the early organizational model of um, what were called local coordination committees, which were kind of like affinity groups, very much, uh, you know, a uh, 
directly anarchist-inspired model, very much taking a tip from the, the modes of uh, organization that we saw among the Spanish anarchists in the 1930s. And these local coordination committees survive today in the few pockets of northern Syria, which are still under the control of rebel forces. Civil, secular, unarmed resistance to both the regime and to the, you know, reactionary jihadist elements among the armed opposition to the regime. And there has been, you know, a real reluctance on the part of, you know, Western anarchists who have been rallying around the Kurdish revolution in Syria to even acknowledge the existence of this kind of liberatory anarchist-inspired element in the, you know, the general Arab-led Syrian revolution. And, you know, I think this is partially due to the fact that, you know, the... uh, The Rojava Kurds have famously been influenced by the works of Murray Bookchin, the late eco-anarchist thinker from Vermont, who a lot of Western anarchists are familiar with, and they're not familiar with Omar Aziz. And they've just swallowed some of the tanky propaganda about the Syrian revolution. Again, I'll have more to say about this in just a minute or two. I am kind of wrapping up this long rant here. Um... I also want to touch on a related phenomenon, although a much um, cruder one, shall we say, of, you know, just uh, the anarcho-idiots, so to speak. I'm going to note that, you know, the weekend before last, one of our old stalwarts, I was ranting about this on my last last podcast, but one of our old um, stalwarts from, I'm not going to mention his name at the moment, from the Lower East Side Anarchist Uprising in the 1980s, was actually leading a criminally stupid anti-vax rally in Tompkins Square Park. And maddeningly, these anti-vax idiots who were spreading all of the typical disinformation and conspiracy bullshit from the stage actually had a big black banner with the circle A anarchist symbol. To which I respond, anti-science reactionaries, hands off anarchism. And this is where, you know, that original impulse... That original, you know, anti-authoritarian, nobody's going to tell me what to do impulse, which you know, led me to become an anarchist way back in 1980, shows itself at its most pathological. Because what inspired me to uh, assume this stance was being told to register for the draft, which was a bad thing. And what's inspiring these guys to do it is being told to get vaccinated and to wear a mask, which is a good thing. And don't bait me about how, you know, I'm echoing the government and political establishment by saying that it's a good thing, because you guys, you anarcho-idiots are also echoing the political establishment, only the most evil and fascistic exponent of the political establishment, Fox News and the Trumpistas and the MAGA heads. And, you know, here I'm just going to, you know, at risk of being corny, I'm going to invoke a very pithy line by Bob Dylan, to live outside the law, you must be honest. By which he means that, you know, anarchism has got to be based first and foremost on a sense of social solidarity. And nothing is more betraying of the notion of social solidarity than this anti-vax bullshit. And similarly, in in the uh, yellow vest protest in France a couple of years ago, you saw elements of the uh, the populist right and and, you know, ostensibly left-wing anarchists kind of coming together with a certain degree of factionalism and tension, I will acknowledge, but nonetheless coming together around a very vague populist program. And, uh, you know, we've seen over and over again, you know, the term anti-government 
and even the term anarchist being used in media and mainstream discourse to describe the radical right, who are our worst enemies. And my fear is that, uh, you know, just as we uh, lost the word libertarian to the right, we may now also be losing the word anarchism to the right, which would be a really, really paradoxical development, you know, coming at a time when, as I acknowledge, anarchist ideas are actually being mainstreamed, which is a very hopeful development. So I really urge my fellow anarchists not to fall for the paradoxical fascist pseudo-anti-fascism of the contemporary radical right, which is what I maintain it remains, despite the fact it's being mainstreamed with terrifying rapidity, continues to be the radical right which attempted to pull off a fascistic coup, if not an outright fascist coup, in this country back in January, and is now harnessing and exploiting and weaponizing the anti-science backlash against the vaccine. I'm also going to say that, uh, you know, while remaining an anarchist at heart, I've been increasingly informed in recent years by the uh, very rich writings and thinkings of the... Uh, Marxist humanist tradition based on the theories developed by uh, Raya Dunayevskaya, a tendency that forthrightly rejects Stalinism and state capitalism in all of its manifestations, and has also uh, put forth, I will have to say, some worthwhile critiques of the anarchists. <laughs> Particularly, uh, I'm going to point uh, people to the um, the criticisms which have been uh, aired by the Marxist Humanist Initiative online at MarxistHumanistInitiative.org of um, David Graeber, the late anarchist thinker who was kind of, uh, you know, the superstar of the Occupy movement 10 years ago, calling him out for um, a kind of glib utopianism and failing to grapple with the actual restraints that we suffer under in the context of capitalist power relations. Worthwhile criticisms of some of the, uh, you know, theoretical limitations, shall we say, of the Occupy movement, which, you know, was to a certain degree, you know, co-opted into a kind of a facile populism. And again, also saw a certain degree, although this, certainly David Graeber was not guilty of this, but, um, you know, saw a certain degree of uh, flirtation with the populist right. And in addition to, you know, having overall, you know, a socialistic an anti-capitalist critique, you know, also saw a certain flirtation with the ideas of, uh, you know, Ron Paul and the Libertarian Party and thinking that, you know, getting back to the gold standard was going to be the answer, which, you know, is just reactionary nonsense. And again, it was dangerous for those inroads were made, it really pointed to a uh, limitation of the movement, which we should, you know, there's been this kind of grappling 10 years later, just last month, September was the 10 year anniversary of the beginning of the Occupy movement. Okay, so all of this said, you know, I think it's very important to um, keep an anarchist spirit alive, and I am very happy to see it re-emerging in the world. In many ways, even as, you know, grim a moment that this is for humanity and all of the peril of disease, fascism, world war, and ecological collapse that we face at this moment, in some ways, it's kind of the moment that I've been waiting for all my life, where anarchist ideas are once again beginning to enter mainstream discourse. And it's especially critical to keep these ideas alive due to the um, real ideological assault which is being launched at this moment 
from the so-called tankies, which are, you know, those elements of the left or the pseudo-left, which, you know, they got their name because they supported Moscow sending the tanks into Hungary back in 1956. And their heirs today would similarly turn the anti-war forces in the West into mere extensions of the, you know, foreign policy aims of uh, Russia and China, which is particularly perverse given that Russia and China are not even socialist anymore. If they ever were, they certainly are not today. Russia, not even in name, not making any pretense whatsoever. But um, that is a fodder for another rant once again. So uh, join us next time on the Counter Vortex, where I rant on you every week. And if you want to uh, dictate what I'm going to rant about for a particular episode of the weekly Counter Vortex podcast, support us on Patreon. $2 per podcast and you get to call the tune. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash countervortex. Join the Counter Vortex, join the resistance, and rant on you next time. No trap, no war! If there's a war, then I want to know what for. I ain't gonna go, I ain't gonna fight to 